All right, welcome to New Life East. You can take a seat if you haven't already. My name is Rory. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so glad to see some of you this morning, to see all of you, not just some of you. I'm glad to see all of you. Um, Glad that you're here. Um, It's a packed house at 11 o'clock as usual. Um, So this is going to be a fun morning. (laughs) Before we get started, um, we actually have some family business we need to take care of. Um, It is someone's birthday today, and I'm not even going to... I'm not even going to look this person in the eyes because I feel like she'll try and make me not do what's about to happen. It is Mandy Arndt's birthday today. Can we sing happy birthday to her this morning, guys? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Mandy, we love you. Very thankful for you. Glad you're here. <laughs> it's always fun when we get to sing happy birthday to people at church. Okay, we, um, we started last week a series on the book of 1 John. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 John. If not, um, the verses will be up on the screen. Um, last week, we, we started, uh, and Pastor Andrew kicked us off in a beautiful way. But one of the things that um, really needs to sort of carry over into this as we think about it Um, is that one of the the points that Andrew made is that when we look at the way that John talks about who God is, what the life of faith is, is that it is not about this sort of detached, um, ethereal, out there, someday in the future life, we will experience life in the kingdom, but it is this invitation that life in the kingdom sort of takes place right here and right among us. And I think we get to see glimpses of that, like last weekend when 16, 15 people got baptized here at New Life East, which was a beautiful, yeah, it was an awesome moment. What you see are people sort of walking in physically into whatever that new life with Jesus looks like. I can remember um, I, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. I was a like a dysfunctional, broken, angry, fought all the time, kicked out of school 16-year-old. And I became a Christian at 16, met Jesus in this uh, large Pentecostal church. And I didn't know what Pentecostal meant. I just knew that people behind me kept making noises and the guy on stage kept yelling. So I was like, we're in church. This is it, I guess. Um, and so I, I, for whatever reason, I was like, we'll, we'll do this. So I gave my life to Jesus at 16. And you know what didn't happen? Um, I didn't wake up the day after I like became a Christian um, and was like, just like Jesus. Um, I didn't like go into the waters of baptism and come up and all of a sudden my life was like really perfect. Um, I didn't like behave better all of a sudden. I didn't like have my character wasn't all of a sudden fully formed into the image of Christ. Some of you can remember that moment you gave your life to Jesus, you got baptized, whatever it was. And you were like, in in the back of your mind, there was an inkling of you that was hoping that all of a sudden things would be like completely different, but you woke up to reality. And reality is that even when you make those decisions, what happens is there's still parts of you that have to be formed into the image of Christ. This is a great decision. It's the best decision you'll ever make, but you find yourself going, man, there, there's gotta be more to this. So I found myself as a 16 year old, even heading off to college, asking myself sort of over and over and over again, 
well, how in the world do I become like Jesus then? Do I just sort of like fake it until I make it and hope that like one day God's like, ah, you're doing it. Do I, do I just like keep going? Do I just go to church? And like, that's the thing. If I go to church, if I, if I give, if I do all of, if I go to Bible studies, like, will that be the thing that like sort of helps me become like Jesus? And all of a sudden I'll wake up one morning and my life is perfect and, and I'm great. I became infatuated with this question. Like, how do we change? How do we become like Jesus, right? I listen to pastors stand on a stage and say, when you, when you give your life to Jesus, man, the goal is to become like him. And I found myself being like, but how? How does one do that? Maybe you've been a Christian your whole life and your whole life has been plagued by the question of, but how? Maybe you're one of those people that got baptized last weekend and you're still thinking like, well, okay, I, we did the thing, like marked it. My life is like forever changed by Jesus. But how do I become like Jesus? The two words that have been used for this process throughout church history is what we call spiritual formation. The process where we are formed from who we are into the image of Christ. And into the image of Christ doesn't mean that like our human life is sort of discarded. It actually just means that we're like grafted into him and we begin to look more and more like Jesus. And what first John gives us today, John, as he writes this letter, he gives us a really helpful launching point to begin to talk about how is it that we begin to look more and more like Jesus. He writes this starting in chapter two, verse three, he says, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commands, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, which is a little harsh, but okay. And the truth is not in that person. So not only are you are a, you're a liar, but you don't even have the access to the truth. He says, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God, or some translations will say God's love, is truly made complete in them. So for whatever, whatever this is for John, this is important. It is all sort of circling around love. Okay, this is not like some distant thing. This is about love, love that is made complete within us. He says, this is how we know we are in him. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Let's pray. God, we, um, man, we're thankful for this place that we call New Life East. We're thankful for the people that are around us. We're thankful for the joy that we receive when we see people we know and love and we feel seen. God, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for what it means to be the church. God, but we stand in this space this morning asking the question, what does it mean to live like your son lived? And why, what does that mean for us? And what are we to do with it? What a great challenge. But God, if we know anything about you that is true, it's that you're good, which means that whatever is attached to it must be a great reward. So God, would you open our eyes today to see the fruit of that? Would you open our minds to think about the scriptures in a new way? Would you open up our minds to think about salvation in a new way? Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak to us? Would you bring newness and freshness into our lives? We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. So what does it mean to live like Jesus Lived. I'm going to give you a mind-blowing definition, okay? It's going, to like, it's going to wreck your brain. To live like Jesus means to do the very things that Jesus did. It's good. You guys, we can go home now. This feels like 
We figure it out. To live like Jesus means to do the very things that Jesus did. Now, if you're like me at all, you think about that and you go, okay, clear enough. Um, Roy, I don't know if you know this. Jesus was God in the flesh though. So Jesus has a pretty impressive resume for me to like try to sort of model my life after. Even think about just the commands, the, the teachings he laid out, right? Jesus taught things like, man, it's really important that you'd love your neighbor, but I hate my neighbor. So that's pretty challenging. Jesus said, hey, when someone like commits a wrong against you, you need to like turn the other cheek. You don't react. Violence for violence, you turn the other cheek. And you're like, but God, I like to fight. This was me as a 16-year-old. Jesus says, when people wrong you, you're supposed to forgive. His disciples say, well, how many times? 70 times 7, which is Hebrew code for until you die. Supposed to just keep forgiving people? No matter what they do to me, I just keep forgiving them. Jesus' commands were challenging enough, more or less, to think about the very things that Jesus did. Roy, you're telling me to live like Jesus did, but um, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I've never once walked up to someone's dead relative and told them to wake up and it worked. The best I can do is pray that God's will would be done in the world. Maybe you think to yourself, I've never got down in the dirt with a blind person and spit in the mud and smeared it on their eyes and they walked away and went, thank you, that was very helpful. You never were put on trial before an empire and then hung on a cross and then murdered in front of an entire crowd of people. And then raised to life three days later. To live like Jesus lived feels like a bit of a challenge to say the least. And it's interesting because I think the church that John was writing to would have felt the same sort of tension that you and I do. You want us to live like Jesus. Maybe the greatest human being to ever live, you want us to live like him. The problem was for them to live like Jesus would have raised a different problem. There was a heresy that had begun floating around the early church We know for sure floating around the church that John is writing to is a heresy called Gnosticism. Some of you have maybe heard about this. If if you're a Bible nerd, if you haven't, I'll, I'll give you just a quick rundown of it. Gnosticism was essentially the idea that anything that was spiritual was good. Anything that was physical was not just like bad, but was potentially evil, potentially corrupt. So the way Gnosticism begins to creep in the church is twofold. One... Lots of questions about who Jesus really was begin to be raised. Was he really like God in the flesh or was he just sort of this spirit who floated around who could do really peculiar things and that's why we were so impressed with him. So there's questions about who Jesus really is that begin to be raised. But then there's also a problem and you can sort of maybe follow this to its logical conclusion. If the things that are spiritual are all that matter and the things that are physical don't matter at all, well then an obvious question should raise itself. Does how I live my life make any difference? Can't I just do whatever? Isn't the ultimate goal just like heaven, the great beyond, someday? You guys know the old church hymn, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly. Right. Yeah, it's so nice to know that those thoughts from thousands of years ago never creeped in to the church now. 
we began to find ourselves, the church began to find itself going, well, if physical doesn't matter, then all we're really longing for is the future someday. So how we live, what we do with our bodies, the things that we say, the way that we act, none of that really matters at all. And so you have to wonder, why is John being sort of as explicit as he is? He says, well, if you want to know if you know him or not, he uses the word know a lot because Gnosticism proposes that if there's anything for you to know, it's this like secret hidden thing that's out there in the clouds and only a few special people have the information and the knowledge. And if they can share it with you, well, then you're good. You're in the club. But if they don't, you're just kind of left to rot in this material world that you find yourself in. So think about how the early church must have thought about Jesus, the challenges that must have presented themselves. The call is to live like Jesus lived. So Jesus's life is either this mythical, distant, just straight up spiritual thing that no one could ever come close to, or it's this physical thing. And maybe the physical thing isn't all that good at all. What John says though, is there's actually another way to think about this, which is to become like Jesus is to begin to live the very life that Jesus himself lived. And yet the way most of us think about salvation or the life of faith is that it happens in one single moment. We say yes to Jesus. We walk up and we say a prayer and then we're good. We get baptized. We get in the waters. We we come up out of it and we're good. Yet think about how Jesus talks about the life of faith. Think about that. I don't have a slide for this, but think about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He tells a story about some builders who build their house right? One of them builds their house on what? Sand. And does that go well for him? No. Then there's another builder who builds his house on what? The rock. And how is it that Jesus describes the person who's built their house on the rock? The person who hears all the things that I've said and puts them into action. So for Jesus, salvation in the life of faith is not a single solitary moment. It's a life of little dynamic moments taking place all across your history. What I would propose to you is that most of us think about the life of faith wrong. And to think about it right, we need to look at Spike Lee and Michael Jordan. Now track with me here for a second. Some of you remember Michael Jordan. You guys know who Michael Jordan is, correct? Okay, most of you, some of you. You're like, is that the guy who plays for the Lakers right now? No, it's not. Um, not even close. <laughs> Michael Jordan, maybe the biggest uh, professional basketball player we have ever experienced in our time uh, of history. And he becomes one of the first athletes to get his own signature shoe with Nike. They give him his own signature shoe and, and it becomes a, a big deal. And so one day it, it's become such a big deal that Nike realizes they need to start marketing this in a different way. So they hire a young director who's just made his first feature film a guy by the name of Spike Lee, and they bring Spike Lee in to play a character who starred in his first film. The character's name was Mars Blackman. So Mars and Michael make these commercials that are going together where they're talking about the shoes. They're trying to get people to buy them. The most famous commercial that we can think of that came from that, even if you're not a shoe person or a basketball person, you've heard of this commercial. The title of the commercial was, It's Gotta Be the Shoes. It's got to be the shoes. And in the commercial, Mars and Michael are having a conversation about what makes Michael so great. He looks at him and he says, Michael, is it the baggy shorts that you wear when you play? Mike says, no, that's not it. He says, is it the haircut that you have? Which for Michael Jordan meant no hair at all. No, that's not it. Is it the way that you dunk? 
Is it the athleticism? He says, no, that's not it at all. And there's this repeated question sort of dispersed throughout the commercial that says, well, is it then the shoes? The advertising pitch is, if you could just get Michael's shoes, well, then, man, you might become like Michael Jordan. Just a question by a show of hands in here. How many people ever owned a pair of Jordans in this room? Just ever. How many of you have ever bought your kids a pair of Jordans? Maybe you bought someone you know. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, just for those of you who raised your hand and were like, I bought some Jordans before. Have any of you ever won six NBA titles since owning those shoes? No? Colin? Nope. Uh, have any of you ever won uh, a scoring title in the National Basketball Association upon purchasing those shoes? No. Have any of you ever put up 63 points in a playoff game while wearing those shoes? Let me tell you the truth. I've owned a pair of Jordans. You know what happens when I wear a pair of Jordans? Absolutely nothing. I can't touch a rim. I couldn't score 40 points with the flu. I couldn't rock a bald haircut. You want to try it? We'll give it a try. Okay, cool. The point is, the pitch is great. And I get the marketing of it. I'm not railing on the the commercials. The point is, we often do this with Jesus. We go, we we want our lives to begin to embody the very characteristics, the very character, the very formation of Jesus himself. And so what we think to ourselves is like, well, in order to be like Jesus, I would have to do all the like big things that Jesus did. You know what makes Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan? It's not the shoes. It's not the shorts. It's not the haircut. It's not the points in the game. It's all the stuff that no one ever sees. It's when he gets up, when he would get up at 5 a.m., shoot thousands of free throws. It's when he would go to practice, be the first one in and the last one out. It's when he would lift until his arms couldn't lift anymore. The point is, it was those small moments behind the scenes that actually allowed him to be who he was in a game. It was the small moments behind the scenes that allowed for the automatic responses in his life. I would propose to you, what John is suggesting is that the life of faith is meant to look exactly like that. It's not the big moments that will define the life of faith, the life of salvation for us. It's all of the small moments, the little things behind the scenes. There's someone who can make this much clearer for us. His name's Dallas Willard. He's a writer and a philosopher. He says this, my central claim is that we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities that he engaged in. The types of activities that he engaged in have been throughout history called spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines. So for some of you, this is going to feel like Christianity 101 all over again. And for others of you, what this is going to do is give you some new language for what it is that you ought to be doing in this life of faith. Spiritual disciplines. Let me give you a definition that works for me our behavior is done over and over again, trusting that as we do them, the Spirit is forming us into Christ-like characters, preparing us to live like Jesus in the world. So in other words, these disciplines are not things that are inherently like magical. 
There's no voodoo about them. There's nothing special about them. But what we trust is that their normal activities, that when we engage in them, the Spirit somehow finds His way into it and begins to form us into the very image of Jesus Himself. In other words, it helps us live exactly like Jesus did. So what I want to do with the last 9 minutes and 40 seconds that I have here, I'll go over that, but for pretend... I want to look at what these disciplines have been historically identified as. And here's my challenge for you as we look at them. There's going to be a lot of words on these lists. I would imagine the way the Spirit will work this morning for us is He will open our eyes to see a space, a word, a thing, a practice that He's inviting us into. And I want to challenge you to consider what it might look like in your life. So first off, we have disciplines, what I call disciplines of restraint. These are disciplines that are meant to keep you back from other things. Silence, solitude, fasting, and simplicity. I think about silence and solitude. Think about Jesus' life. One of the very first things he does after he gets baptized, he finds himself wandering in the desert for 40 days. He spends a month and a half alone. I have to imagine it's somewhat silent. And yet what we know about Jesus is that he gets encountered with temptations while he's out there wandering. And I believe the reason that he has the ability to overcome those is he spent 40 days listening, trusting the voice of God. He's learned how to do it through silence and solitude. What those two things also do for you is I think this is going to become more and more true for every generation upon every generation. Is the moment you wake up every day, there are thousands of voices hollering at you. The primary one sits in a little rectangle box that you sit on the side of your bed every night. And some of you, you roll over very first thing in the morning and you pick it up and you press it and the screen turns on. And the news is there to tell you how awful the world is and how everything is going to hell in a handbasket. Your social media is there to tell you how you're just not quite as good as everyone else. Your email is there to tell you that you should have woken up two hours ago. And your calendar is there to create some anxiety for all the things you've still got to accomplish. What silence and solitude do when you step away from all those things is you begin to identify what the voices that should have the most sway in your life are. And there's really only one. But when you're surrounded by a bunch of others, it's hard to filter them out. What fasting and simplicity do for us is they remind us that the things that we have right here and right now are more than enough. Fasting and simplicity, quite honestly, fight against every bit of the American dream. Accumulate wealth. Get more. You need more. Will you ever be happy if you don't have more? We see these in Jesus' life. Jesus lives as simply as he possibly can. And he doesn't do it self-righteously. He just does it because he recognizes that everything he has in front of him is more than enough. For some of you, that's the word you need to hear today. You're stressed about money. You're stressed about career. You're stressed about your house. You're stressed about your car. What you simply need to hear is that it doesn't matter how little or how much you have. What you have in front of you is, quite frankly, enough. So these are disciplines of restraint. Disciplines that when you practice them over and over again, they're keeping you from things so that you can actually experience the fullness of the good things that are in your life. Coming up next, we have disciplines of what I would call restraint and commitment. So I'm giving away, we're going to look at disciplines of commitment in a minute. But there's one that falls into this category and it's confession. It's a discipline of pulling back from the things that are destroying your life, things that have 
fractured you. But it's also a commitment because it takes some real bravery and courage to be honest with people, does it not? To look at your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your spouse and say, look, I've messed up. You know what confession does for us psychologically? It, it reveals to us that we are not as great as we believe we are, but we are also more loved than we could imagine we are. And we experience that both from God, because what we find when we confess sin is most people will say they feel a literal release of weight off of their body. But you also recognize that God's love for you is not shifting and changing. What you also discover when you confess sin to someone you know is that your fears of rejection dissolve away. When you share the truth with that person, when you say, listen, man, I, my li- I have been messing things up as much as I could. And they go, man, thanks for telling me. Where do you want to get breakfast? What you discover is that the judgment, the criticism, the anxiety that you've been holding about just being honest with someone, it dissolves, goes away. So what you discover in the discipline of confession when you do it over and over again is that the way that the Spirit meets you is that He meets you in a non-judgmental, non-confrontational, empathetic way. I'm with you. It's okay. And then there are disciplines of commitment. These are disciplines like Scripture and worship and service. And those three, the Western Evangelical Church, we do these pretty well. We do most of the other ones pretty poorly, but we do these three really well. Most people that call the church their home in the West, they're pretty good at being like, I've got a quiet time. I read my Bible. I show up to church. But this is why church, just showing up to a service is a discipline. Some of us want it to be a little more romantic than it is. But how many of us, if we're honest, have found ourselves waking up on Sunday morning and going, I don't really want to do this. Oh, just me, just the pastor. Okay, that's fine. You find yourself going, man, I really like online church. Can we just stay home and just watch this? And then I don't have to like sort of talk to people or it's a commitment. It's a discipline for a reason. You think about celebration. This is one of the like most significant disciplines if we can figure out how to do it right because it's one that's existed in the lifeblood of God's people for thousands of years. You think about in the Old Testament, how often do the people of God have a moment of victory or, 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 or something good happens to them? They cross over a body of water that they're not supposed to be able to cross over. And what do they do? They build a monument. And the language they use is we are building this So we will never forget what God has done in our lives. Can I just give you some freedom today? We should be better at celebrating the things that God does in our lives. When we have friends who have been far from God, who show up on Sunday and are like, you know what? I guess I'll come to church with you. Celebrate it. When you look at friends who have marriages that have been falling apart and are fractured and all of a sudden God starts to piece it back together, man, celebrate it. When your kids are like just figuring out how to be good, functioning humans. Celebrate it. Have moments in your life where celebration is just natural and you can look back and go, we will never forget all that God has done. 
I think prayer also, the Western church tends to get, do pretty well at this. The truth is, I think we miss the importance of it. Prayer is like the backbone of any spiritual discipline. If you can't converse with God, silence is going to be real lonely. If you can't listen to God, solitude is going to feel real pointless. So prayer in some ways undergirds all of these. But then the last one on this list is one that I think many of us struggle with, and it's the discipline of friendship. The discipline of friendship. I think there's often a dialogue about like millennials and Gen Z of how like we sort of we're like transient. We don't make a ton of deep friendships. You know what I found to be true is that adults are just bad at friendship. We're not great at it. I say this all the time. When you're a kid, there's this reality, which is you just find yourself in environments where friendship is implied. You're at a playground and you're like, hey, you're at a playground too. You're like, are we friends now? We're like, yeah, let's go build bunk beds in the garage, whatever. Um, You have these like, that's a botched quote from stepbrothers. We don't need to revisit it. Let's just like move past it. I'm going to do my best to move past it. It's going to bother me the rest of the day, but we're going to keep going. But you find yourself, you're at school and you're like, oh, we're all here. We're all like doing the same thing. We all don't like school together. Yeah. And then you're like friends. Something happens though, when you like become an adult and you're not in those environments anymore, that it requires some effort or energy on your part to have like real deep, meaningful friendships. So often we sort of float around with these like surface level relationships where people will be like, I have a bunch of friends. And I'm like, what do you know about them? And they're like, well, I work with them. And I'm like, nah, that's not it. The discipline of friendship implies that it takes some consistent work on our part. I remember, uh, pastoral confession time, I remember first church I was on staff at after I graduated college. And I was actually the pastor who like oversaw all of the groups at this church. And uh, we got put into this small group with a bunch of people our age. It was like 15, 16 people all in the same phase of life that we're in. And we were like, oh, man, that's great. Uh, Like people our age, these are like, you know, friends, whatever. We can make friends with these people. And the truth is when you're an adult, you don't make friends as much as you just realize someday. Like, oh, I think these people are our friends. Like this is, you're kind of like, this is what we got. I don't know if it's what I would have chosen, but it's what we got. And so I would find myself every time we were like driving to meet with this group of people, right? We're in a group, we're supposed to get together and like, you know, talk about the Bible and be friendly and whatever, all the stuff that you guys are supposed to do in your groups. And yet I found myself every time we were driving, I'd turn and look at my wife and be like, do we have to go to this? And I know none of you have ever done that because you're all much better than me. But I found myself being like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I don't want to hang out with these people. I don't want to, I just don't want to do it. My wife was like, we made a commitment. We said we were going to do this. And I was like, that's fine, but I don't want to like it. So I'm not going to like it. So we would go and like, you know, we stayed committed to it. And it was definitely a discipline. It was a thing that I was like, I don't know that I really want to do this. It's hard. It felt more like going to the gym. I would have probably rather have gone to the gym. And then one day, one of the couples in this little friend group of ours, their name was Alex and Andrew. They called us. They called my wife. And he said, hey, would you be willing to come and sit with, at our house with our daughter for a couple of hours? We were like, um, she was like, sure. And I was like, hold on, ask more questions. Um, 
Alex goes, uh, we just recently found out that my dad is dying of an extremely fast-moving form of cancer. We don't know if he'll be here tomorrow. And you know what I didn't do in that moment? I didn't go, do we have to? Like, do we have to go sit with these, these people's kids? Like, I don't, this was before we had kids. I was like, I don't want to sit with a one-and-a-half-year-old. Like, that doesn't sound fun to me. What, what immediately happened was because we had committed to it and the discipline had just taken shape, we found that the Spirit had moved at least into my heart and it welled up a sense of empathy and compassion. You're asking us if we can go sit with your child while you go sit and watch your dad die? Absolutely, we'll do that. I'm happy to do that. So we did. And what happens in that moment is what happens when any discipline has been practiced long enough is that you discover that there is love flowing in and out from all directions. It's flowing to you, and you also then have the capacity to have the instantaneous response for it to flow out of you. And to say, absolutely, I would come sit with you while you guys go handle family business. We discover that what we're doing is actually engaging in the discipline of serving. We're walking with a, we're sitting with a one and a half year old. We're serving this family by doing that. And all of a sudden, This year of saying, we're going to stick with these people, we're going to stick with these people, we're going to stick with these people has a moment of payoff. And the payoff is not like we all became wealthy or like we all felt this intense experience of joy. The payoff was that we were actually doing what Jesus would have done. We were willing to stand in the gap for this family, watch their kid, put their kid down to sleep, feed their kid a bottle while they went and served their family and did such things. This is the beauty of what spiritual disciplines unearth in us. And I know what can happen for some of us as we talk about spiritual disciplines, especially as they're connected with like salvation. The question can be like, Rory, are you telling us that like, if I don't do these things, salvation is not happening for me? No, you're saved by grace through faith. But here's the truth. Something else that Dallas Willard says that I think is really helpful. He says this, he says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is is an attitude. Effort is an action. What I'm not inviting you into today is to like read your Bible more so that God is happier with you. I'm not suggesting that you get more committed to church so that Jesus is like smiling on you. I'm not suggesting that you should like show up to worship and sing louder so that if God happens to show up in the middle of a service, you're the loudest one. That's earning. That's not what the spiritual disciplines do. Spiritual disciplines are simply efforts that are rooted in grace. You confess your sin because you discover that when God hears you, he responds in love. That's effort. That's not earning. You fast because it reminds your soul that God in and of himself is enough for you. That's effort. That's not earning. So friends, the invitation for all of us, if we want to look more like Jesus, we have to live like Jesus lived. And if we want to live like Jesus lived, we have to begin to do what I think John referenced all the way back in the gospel of John when he quoted Jesus saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me, if you stick close to the very life of Jesus and Jesus then sticks close to you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up thrown into the fire and burned. I think this is what James meant when he said faith without works is dead. 
If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Friends, this is the invitation, and he ends with this. I have told you this so that my joy, can we throw that back up there? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Friends, would you stand where you are this morning? As we prepare to approach the table, the truth is, is that the table is a picture for us, that every time we step to it, that God is also stepping closer to us, that that abiding sense of love is always happening. That the reason we practice the spiritual disciplines, the reason that we engage in these things is not to be holier than everyone else. It's not to, it's not to fake it until we make it. It's to give God the vehicles for which he presents his spirit to us. And that happens right here at the table. I think that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. A very real body, not pretend, not some spiritual image that's being projected. His very real body, which is broken for you. And the invitation is that every time we eat, we would do it and remember him. And then he takes the cup after supper. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink, would you do this in remembrance of me? Friends, the invitation today is to draw close to Jesus. We do that through the disciplines, but we also do it by simply, physically stepping towards the very things he has promised us. I want to invite our communion servers to come forward. There's going to be two stations on the right and the left side. If you're on this section, you'll come down here, receive a gluten-free cracker and dip it into the juice, take it back to your seat and eat it. And then what we're doing today, we've restructured our service a little bit. We're going to give us space to continue to worship and respond to what it is that God is inviting us into. So the team is going to lead us in a few songs. Sing where you are. I'm going to invite our altar ministry team to be available on the sides and the back of the auditorium. So if you find yourself going, man, I just need someone to pray with me and find those people. They have the lanyards on around their necks against the wall. Friends, would you simply lean into this moment? The spiritual disciplines are an invitation. They're not a burden. They're not religious. They're not rules. They're invitations. The same way the table is to come and experience the goodness of God. Would you come forward to receive communion?